This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here along with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Uh, our guest today, Ms. Emily Seppala. She is the Science Director of Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education and author of The Happiness Track, uh, published by Harper One. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Huffington Post, and Scientific American Mind. Thank you so much, Emma, for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Emma, let's uh, begin by uh, giving the listeners uh, a, a sort of overview of your work, and uh, maybe you could tell us how you came to the scientific study of happiness. Sure. Well, I grew up in France and Europe, and I've lived in the U.S. Uh, for college and beyond, and I also spent a couple of years in China, and again and again, I was surprised to see that some people have it all and are not happy while others have nothing and are very happy. That really intrigued me and um, inspired me to research the science of happiness as a graduate student at Stanford. And another factor was that in Silicon Valley and at Stanford, I saw that people were very talented, ambitious, working hard, but often they were doing so at their own expense. So they fell for the misconception that in order to be successful, they had to postpone their happiness. Yet again and again, when you look at the research, it's by taking care of your own well-being that you're actually more creative, more charismatic, that you come up with more breakthrough ideas, have better relationships, and are more productive and focused. So I really wanted to help dispel that misconception um, in writing the happiness track. Right. And, and Emma, I wanted to... Uh something that you bring out in your book is that uh, we live in a culture right now in the United States, in the Western world, where, you know, everybody is driven, everybody's supposed to accomplish this, that, and everything else, and there's this constant pressure all the time. And I, I see it not only in the adult world, but uh, with children, their days being entirely structured seven days a week, and they're always having to be in activities. Yeah, do you think this is unhealthy in terms of developing an adult that's going to be content, happy, and productive? Well, we know, for example, that creativity is something that comes about when, you're, when your brain is at rest, when you're in delta wave mode. Mm -hmm. It's in that place when you're daydreaming. And that's why we see that kids are so creative. They can create castles out of nothing, forts out of pillows. They're very imaginative. And they have access to this part of their brain, this creativity, very easily. So there's something to be said about free time idleness um, and time off. Now, on the other hand, we have to look at parent schedules. In, in some cases, it's just not possible not to keep the kids active because the parents have to be at work. So it, it's a balancing act, but I would probably recommend um, that if it's possible to choose programs where the kids have a lot of opportunity to play, that would be, um, that would be beneficial. And you mean by play, you mean play in a kind of unorganized and unstructured way as opposed to, you know, the, the team or the, uh, the program? I mean, time for them to just be kids as opposed to there always being some kind of end goal, some kind of a learning end goal uh, of some sort. In the United States, we fall for um, the Protestant work ethic. We're very much influenced by this idea that we have to prove our worth in the, in the eyes of God, um, for, for lack of a better word. That's, that's what um, the, the Protestant work ethic is all about. Um, through hard work and labor, um, again, we're also influenced by the immigrant work ethic, the idea that our, our ancestors had to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and we have this sense that their life is work. Um, 
and and there's nothing wrong with that. That's what makes this country so industrious, so, so productive. But at the same time, uh, what we've forgotten is to take time off, and we've forgotten the value of idleness, the value of simplicity, the value of doing nothing. Research is showing those things really bring out the best in us as well. Mm-hmm. So we need a balance. Uh, Emma, um, one of the things I've noticed and I'd like you to reflect on is um, oftentimes uh, when I've been in third world countries where there's you know quite a, more poverty than there is here, Cambodia, Indonesia, uh, South Africa, even when I say South Africa, I mean the townships that are very impoverished. Uh, spending time there, I'm always shocked that collectively the people in many ways seem happier than the people I deal with in New York, uh, Chicago, Los Angeles. And, and I think uh, a lot of that has to do with community. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we know that after food and shelter, our greatest need is a sense of connection, social, positive social connection of belongingness. And what we do see in a lot of the developing world is a very collectivistic culture, a culture where you're living close by with your family, with your community, and so forth. Whereas in the United States, some of the Western cultures, we also see that there's a rise in loneliness. One in four Americans say they have no one to speak to about a personal problem. That's an enormous amount. Wow. On average, um, the average American has only one one person to speak to about a personal problem. We're seeing a crisis of loneliness here, which is definitely impacting health and well-being. We know that lack of social connection leads to greater anxiety, depression, even health issues. Whereas um, when you have a lot of positive social connections with others, um, you're happier, you're healthier, you you even um, recover from disease faster, you live longer. So it's a fundamental human need. But the good news is that it has your sense of social connection has less to do with how many friends are around you um, than uh, your subjective feeling of connection. So if, if from within you sense a feeling of belongingness with others, that enough is that is enough uh, to mm-hmm. give you all of the, the, the benefits. Mm, interesting. Emma, let's get back to the uh, scientific study of happiness. Um, it's, a rec- it's a relatively recent uh, discipline in psychology, um, and the question arises, when you're doing empirical work on something like happiness, which is so subjective, um, how do you define it empirically, and how, and, and how reliable is the study of happiness? To what extent can it actually be quantified? Can you, can you reflect on that a bit? Well, in many ways, happiness is a very subjective term, and it's something that is felt innately but difficult to describe. But one way that it's been this defined is um, one of one of two ways. One is a hedonic happiness, that is the happiness of the senses, um, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, money, chocolate, all of the things that bring us some kind of material pleasure, they, and they do lead to a boost of and dopamine in the brain, a boost of, of well-being, um, but it's very short-lived. On the other hand, there's eudaimonic happiness, which is happiness derived from a sense of service, a sense of purpose, something greater than yourself, um, a, a sense of meaning in your life, a sense of connection, of altruism, compassion. And that kind of spirituality, for example, and that um, eudaimonic happiness is linked to a much longer-lasting sense of well-being. I would even call it fulfillment in life. It's also characterized by lower inflammation level uh, rates at the level of the body. 
So um, while both of these uh, forms of happiness lead to boosts in, in well-being, um, uh, you, you probably want a, a good balance of both, if not more of the eudaimonic happiness in your life as well. If I can follow up, Dennis, right. um, and, and how, is, how is it measured? How do you know whether person A in a survey is um, happier or scores higher on, on what measures? How, is, how are these things actually studied? Is it all self-reporting or are there more objective measures? Well, there's a lot of self-report, but it's, it's often uh, corroborated with brain imaging, for example. So we know that if you're getting your brain scanned and you see money going into your account, um, you get a little boost in dopamine. But we also know that when you're getting your brain scanned and you see money going into the account of a charity, you also get a boost in dopamine because that also boosts your well-being, for example. So there's another study in which participants, um, half of the participants were given money to spend on others uh, for, during the day while the other half were given money to spend on themselves. At the end of the day, they saw who felt better, who felt happier. And it was those individuals who had spent money on others. It's a very, that's very encouraging. Uh, let, let me ask you, Emma, how do you define spirituality and what's the relationship of spirituality to that experience that you just mentioned and to happiness in general? Well, what's interesting is that what the science is showing is that altruism, compassion, service, these are all things that have been relegated to perhaps a more spiritual or ethical realm of study. But now we're finding that these are all incredibly powerful predictors of health, happiness, and well-being. And so we're starting to see um, a dialogue that's starting to emerge um, the field of well-being and that of spirituality. We know that um, veterans who go off to war um, and have the same traumatic experience as someone else are less likely to suffer post-traumatic stress disorder if they have a strong um, uh, religious uh, connection, um, if, if religion is very important for them, for example. So it, 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 have, it has a protective effect as well. So, it, it is, you know, the science is still nascent on all this, and obviously there's been a big separation between spirituality and science over the years. But what we're seeing is that a lot of the um, ethics, a lot of the principles that are, have been touted for millennia by religious traditions are, are now being shown to be extremely um, healthful and, and extremely powerful in terms of their impact on our, on our happiness. Now, um, you mentioned certain aspects of, of spirituality, such as service and um, compassion and um, that kind of uh, behavioral stuff. What about spiritual experience and spiritual practice? We, I know there's been a good deal of research mm -hmm. on meditation, and yoga, and things like that. What have you found? Yeah, well, we've conducted research on loving-kindness meditation, which is a Buddhist uh, form of meditation in which you generate love for self and others. I've conducted research on um, a yoga-based breathing practice called Sudarshan Kriya for veterans with trauma. And again and again, we're seeing that these modalities are extremely powerful. They can increase people's well-being in minutes. And in the case of the Sudarshan Kriya, they can actually heal trauma um, in a week, which is just an astounding. We saw that there were benefits to the veterans who participated in our study after one week of doing the Sudarshan Kriya breathing practice. And what we found was that one month later and one year later, the benefits were sustained even when the veterans did not continue practicing, suggesting that there was this acute impact. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's now a lot of 
research showing that. But there's also, you know, other research, for example, on um, gratitude is something else that I think is touted in spiritual traditions and very, very powerful. Um, its impact on health, well-being, relationships um, is very strong. And again, we're seeing here that that's something that um, has been has been talked about a lot in the traditional uh, spiritual traditions. Hmm. Uh, Emma, you mentioned uh, a few times uh, Kriya uh, breathing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? And, and again, we have uh, uh, folks listening in, and it's probably folks listening in that are suffering from folks traumatic stress syndrome or have family members that are, how, how would they pursue uh, either Korea breathing or any of the other techniques that you mentioned that might help them? Um, well, in terms of the Sudarshan Kriya practice, um, it is offered um, for veterans through a nonprofit called Project Welcome Home Troops and then for the community through a nonprofit called Art of Living. And um, the practices can be learned in a week-long program that is very beneficial for anxiety from what we've seen in our study and trauma. So I would highly recommend um, trying those out. I myself um, practice them every day now. I've felt um, a lot of benefit myself. And the loving-kindness meditation that we research, I researched as a graduate student at Stanford um, is also very powerful. And um, I've got a YouTube link to that up. And it's just seven minutes. And mm -hmm. it can really um, make you feel very connected to others and increase your well-being. Research shows that if you do that over a period of time, it can really increase your happiness. I, I'm I'm curious about um, your research on uh, loving kindness, which um, I I think is probably what Buddhists call metta practice. Is that correct? And and um, how um, that kind of study can be designed? Um, do you have people learn a particular form of uh, metta and then measure certain variables? Could you explain that a little bit more? <clears throat> yeah, it's um, it's the kind of meditation that is taught by Sharon Salzberg, and um, and then uh, the way we measured it was we used questionnaires, but that's obviously very subjective. So we didn't want to use just that. We also used a computer program that allowed us to um, look at people's response time uh, to images of strangers and we found that once those who had practiced loving-kindness meditation ended up having a very quick um, and favorable positive response to images of strangers um, compared to those who had not practiced it so um, that was uh, that was that was a you know a way for us to measure their positive bias towards strangers without it being a subjective account and is that a measure of happiness no, we all, uh, that's a measure of social connection, which is what we were looking for. I see. Um, mm -hmm. It's social connection to strangers. So what we saw is that they started to have a positivity bias towards the strangers uh, toward whom they'd done this meditation um, that looked similar to the positivity bias they had towards a picture of a friend or of themselves. Mm -hmm. Emma, I'm curious. Did you get involved in research on happiness because you went through a period in your life where you were unhappy or were you always very happy and wondered why other people weren't? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I definitely have had my ups and downs. It was mostly when I was in China and I, I lived in the apartment of a friend of mine and her father was there and he was this elderly Chinese gentleman who had lived through the Cultural Revolution, had lost his wife to it, and he was this incredibly 
amazing professor of biochemistry, but he was just in bliss all the time. I think he must have been what we call enlightened. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not sure, but he was in a state of constant bliss despite his tragic past. And when I saw him and I interacted with him, I thought there's something there. There's a, a wealth, for lack of a better word, an inner wealth there that is so intriguing. And that's why I came back to the United States and actually did a master's in East Asian studies. I actually focused on Buddhist studies at Columbia after meeting Bob, Thur- Bob mm-hmm. Thurman, who's, you know, as you know, is so amazing. Right. And, um, and then <clears throat> delved into my own practice and, and study as well. Fascinating. Um, Emma, I'd like to get back to your mention of gratitude. Um, I understand that a good deal of research has been done on the, uh, on the effects of, of feelings of gratitude on individual well-being and probably other measures. Um, when you study gratitude, um, I mean, most people's experience is that some people have a natural capacity for being grateful or appreciative, and other people uh, complain a lot and see negative. Uh, so there's sort of personality factors. But how, how is it? How is it studied? Are there practices uh, where people uh, engage in the act of gratitude that can be? Uh, uh, manipulated in, in laboratory kind of settings so that you control those variables? How does, how does that work? Yes. Well, we know that most of us have this negativity bias. Our brain focuses on negative information <clears throat> and the press capitalizes on that. Um, we really haven't, when we have an anxious response to something, we pay more attention to it. Um, and this was probably beneficial for our ancestors, for them to remember um, that, the tiger encounter they had was dangerous is a good thing um, ensure their survival. But in this time and age, we can still focus on the negative when there is really so much to be grateful for. If we're living in a first world country and all is well, and we have more things to be grateful for than not. And yet it can take one email or one phone call or something for our entire day to be ruined. So this negativity bias is not, is not serving us. And we know that three times more positive things happen to us every day than negative uh, from research. And yet, again, we can find ourselves um, drowning in negativity. So this is where gratitude practice can really help. Uh, for one, is just simply being aware of it, just reminding yourself again and again of how lucky you are. Um, another practice I have found useful myself was after living in China, um, I you know, being exposed to the developing world after going to India and being exposed to, you know, seeing what it's like to be a homeless person in New Delhi, um, a homeless child in New Delhi, and just seeing that with your eyes. After that, I think if, if you still find it in your heart to be able to complain, it, it's, it, it, I, I, I think, <laughs> I don't know what to say, you know. Right. And so I think it's, it's helpful to, to really realize that. And sometimes I tell my friends, bring your kids to a developing country if you, and then, you know, they'll come back, they'll change. Um, and then the third thing is, yeah, um, consciously making lists of things you feel grateful for has been shown to decrease depression. Even just writing three things down every day that you feel grateful for, that's a, an active, easy practice you can do um, to, to cultivate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emma, I've heard it said that uh, no, there is no greater happiness than the happiness that comes when one is in the service of others. Uh, does that match your experience uh, and your research? Absolutely. Um, I mean, my favorite quote is um, by Rabindranath Tagore. You probably know it. Mm-hmm. Um, I dreamt, I, you know, it goes like this. I slept and dreamt um, that life was joy. 
I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. And that's my absolute favorite quote. Yeah. And I think there's nothing tr- truer mm-hmm. than that quote. And um, research, again, shows that if you live a life characterized by altruism, compassion, and service, you're happier, you're healthier, and you even live longer. <laughs> you right. ha- and if you, you compare to someone else who has gone through the exact same life stressors, you're more likely to survive. Right. It has this, it, it buffers you from stress in terms of your health. But the important thing is it has to come from a place of selflessness. If you are being altruistic for self-serving purposes, you don't receive the benefits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you're giving money to have your name on a plaque, it's not benefiting you. Right. But I think it's not hard to do selfless service once you feel the deep right. intrinsic joy you get from it, once you really realize how fulfilling it is. Right. There's actually probably nothing you'd rather be doing. Right. Let me just That's follow up on I'm that. I'm so glad you... Oh, go ahead, Ben. Just a quick one, and that is that I've often recommended to young people getting out of college and all, and, and I know they're strapped with debt now, and it's very difficult to do this, but if at that point in their life they could take one year, two years, and work in the service of others, and is a, a you know, a, a, either through a nonprofit or on their own, or however, uh, I think, uh, you know, their life is going to be infinitely happier, and also they're going to uh, be more successful in their careers from the experience they have, I, I, I believe. So, um, you know, uh, I... That that's a piece of advice I give out, and I, and I just want to see what you thought of that. Absolutely right. I mean, just for all the reasons I mentioned, I think that's uh, very powerful, um, and it really is an eye opener, and it really matures you. Um, I taught a lot of workshops to students that involve meditation and then community service, and it was so fulfilling because at, you know all these twenty year olds were coming back and saying, "Wow, I just thought I wanted this car and this house and this thing and this that," and I just realized that actually my greatest happiness comes from being of service, you know, and it's powerful to realize that when you're 20 rather than later in life when you regret the choices you've made. Um, I'm fascinated by what you said. Uh, uh, um, I think experience and the sort of the advice of wise people throughout the ages tells us that when service is done in a truly selfless and compassionate way, it benefits the person who's doing the service more than when it's being done for selfish reasons. And you, you just said that, and I'm wondering if there's actual data that demonstrates that and how, how do you measure such a thing? How do you know when somebody is engaged in service works of some kind what their inner attitude about it is? Uh, I'm not recalling the exact methods of the paper I'm thinking of, but the results were that you, if, if you're working out of self-interest, you're not going to receive the physical health and longevity benefits that you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it really has to come from a pure sense of altruism. Oh, fascinating. Uh, Emma, uh, I have to ask you this. When I first was reading about you in your bio, and, and I read that you were the science director of Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Uh, I have been in three different graduate schools. There were no centers of compassion and altruism <laughs> in those schools that I could find anywhere. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering how that came about, and I think it's fantastic. You know, but how, how did it happen? Well, it, it was um, one of the founding patrons is the Dalai Lama. Um, he came and in, spoke to neuroscientists at Stanford and, and, and inspired um, our, our founder in particular, Dr. James Doty, um, to start the center. And then we had some generous benefactors uh, who helped um, establish it after uh, that. And um, we've been going ever since. 
Are there other similar places outside of Stanford, similar institutes? Um, not, not, not that many, uh, not yet. So hopefully this is spurring a movement, though. I have a, but there are centers growing. You know, there are centers dedicated to mindfulness, centers dedicated to emotional intelligence at Yale and other places as mm-hmm. well. Um, Emma, earlier you mentioned that one of the factors in measuring well-being um, and recovery from trauma and all that is religious engagement. Um, and I know I've, I've, I've seen that research in the past that people who have a religious life or a religious community tend to have better health outcomes. But there's also research showing that the kind of religious involvement matters. There's something called negative religious coping. When people who have certain kinds of religious involvement, religious beliefs uh, that are fear-based can have the reverse effect on health. Are there similar uh, nuanced findings in the study of happiness? I don't exactly know how to think about that question um, or how to apply it to the science of happiness. Mm. You know, we know that people who are not happy, who have anxiety, depression, tend to be more focused on themselves. As a consequence, they're not as connected to others. As a consequence, it's a negative spiral. Um, if you take care of yourself or happier and you feel more connected to others, your relationships improve, that boosts your well-being, and it's a positive cycle. Mm-hmm. Mm. In the finding, I'm, I'm aware of people who felt that their illness was punishment from God for their sins or who feared uh, that they'd go to hell. That kind of thing tended to lead to uh, negative health outcomes as compared to people who got nurturing feelings and uh, feelings of love and support from religion. I wonder, well... Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting to study in the context mm-hmm. of happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Hey, uh, Beliefs Emma, about happiness. Yeah. Emma, you're you're out there in uh, one of the creative centers of the world, the, the Palo Alto area, Silicon Valley, and I know you've spoken at Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Ernst and Young, and in a number of other companies, uh, and you probably deal with a lot of millennials uh, who are very brilliant, working at those companies, creating a lot of uh, 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 you know, w- wealth for for society and uh, inventing new areas for communication and, and, and everything else that we benefit from. What's their read on happiness? How do they react to you? Where do you think they're headed? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future based on your interactions with those folks? Well, for one, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I saw that people were driving themselves into the ground. And mm-hmm. So that was worrisome to me. And, and definitely when I gave my book talk, in some of those places, I've saw a lot of very eager listeners who, and I could feel the pain. Uh, mm-hmm. I could, and that, that, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I could feel that pain point. This is not sustainable. 50% of the American workforce is um, experiencing burnout, and 70% of the American workforce is disengaged at work. I mean, there's a problem here that we're seeing. It's not working. What we're doing is not working. And it's not like that in other countries. Um, the U.S. is very, very focused on productivity, which is great, but the way that life is um, being managed is not balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, some people might say, well, that's just, we can't help it. For example, if you live in California, the rent is so high mm. that unless you're working very, very hard, you just cannot make it. Right. <laughs> it's a sad fact of life. Right. So the other thing is um, that... Um, 
you know, there's this whole movement now to create different technologies to increase happiness and well-being, different apps and things. Um, and I've been, I receive nearly weekly emails from this app developer and that app developer who mm. want consulting on their app. Um, so I think that's interesting and we'll see where it goes. Um, I think it helps some, you know, in terms of like meditation apps can be very helpful to have a number of meditations um, that you, mm. you can listen to very easily. Um, there's an app called Sattva, um, S-A-T-T-V-A that I know is very popular and it works well. Um, and another one called Mind, I think it's called Headspace, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so those, those, those can be very beneficial for people as well. Um, although I, I don't know, you know, some, you know, some people may argue that you need an instructor there, that that is really where you're going to get proper transmission of the instructions. Yeah. Well, that would make an interesting comparative study, wouldn't it? <laughs> they would. <clears throat> Emma, in your book, in the happiness track, there are essentially uh, six chapters, and each of the chapter titles um, it, it contains uh, uh, an important bit of advice, like stop chasing the future and step out of overdrive, manage your energy, get more done by doing more of nothing, enjoy a successful relationship with yourself, <clears throat> and understand the kindness edge. I just read all the contents. I'm curious about the one, uh, well, all of them, but the, the chapter, Manage Your Energy. How does that relate to happiness, and, and what's, what's the content of the chapter? Well, people generally embrace the idea that in order to get things done, they have to fuel up with adrenaline, which is why people overschedule themselves, overcommit, wait until the last minute to get things done and pump themselves up with caffeine as much as possible. The problem with that is that it puts you in a constant state of fight or flight. Your sympathetic nervous system is constantly activated. You're constantly in a mode of stress, stress response, which if you look in nature, we're only supposed to feel during a life and death situation. When you feel it constantly, and in fact, you create that for yourself in order to be productive, you are wearing and tearing your body down and there's no surprise that come 2 p.m. you're exhausted and come 6 or 7 p.m. when you get home, you collapse on the couch, unable to do anything more for the rest of the day and yet it's not normal. You've been sitting at a desk all day. There's no reason for you to be that tired. We're not doing physical labor. The reason is that we are burning ourselves out by constantly going on adrenaline. You can be more productive, more focused, make better decisions, and be more emotionally intelligent if you nurture calmness rather than adrenaline in your life. And yet, we've bought into this idea. Oh, you're tired? Drink more coffee. Oh, you need to get things done? Drink more coffee. Get that buzz going. <laughs> you know, and, and the problem is that we're, that's one of the reasons we're seeing such burnout, because your body and your nervous system cannot take that amount of overload day after day after day. And we also know that when we're in that state of overload, of stress, of mental overload, we don't make the best decisions. We don't have the best interactions with other people. We're not as creative as we could be. We are not as focused because we're frazzled. So it's it's really interesting. We right. bought into this very false conception. Emma, very well put. And I want to thank you for your time today and coming on. And I know you were having a little bit of a cold. You're coming over, so it's very kind of you to, to talk to us today. And great advice. And I'm going to really... Uh, uh, reprioritize and, and put happiness back on top of the, my pile of things to, to do and become. And, and again, I want to uh, recommend to our listeners uh, your book, The Happiness Track. Any, any final points, uh, Phil? 
I would ask uh, Emma what uh, she, her research is focused on now and what she'd like to study in the future. I'm really interested in how to um, help people develop a greater emotional health and well-being, how to use their emotions to more skillfully interact with the world and themselves. Um, and so delving into this aspect of happiness that's more emotion-based and yet that's at the crux of everything that we do, all of our interactions, all of our relationships, and even our thoughts. So that's something I'm thinking about right now. All right. Thank you very so much, good. Emma. And you're, you're a very busy person, so we want to let you go and um, so you can relax. Right. And, and we'll okay. have posted up on our uh, podcast uh, all the contact information, your website, and all, all the information to find out more about what you were discussing today, or, or feel free to contact uh, Phil and I and find us at spiritmatterstalk.com. Emma, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. And the book is The Happiness Track. <laughs>